So I, I said at first service, I'll say it again, that music's so perky, I kind of want to skip up here. It's, it's fun. So um, well, when we say we want to be a church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone, hopefully you've heard that before. That's not a new statement for you. But inside that statement is kind of a hidden question. And the question is, okay, well, who's everyone? What, what does that mean? And so I'll throw it back. Who is your everyone? In some cases, we say everyone, and that means like a friend or a family member, maybe a neighbor, somebody just down the road or across the fence. Other times when we say everyone, that means something much different. Sometimes it's an easy connection. Sometimes it's a very hard connection. And so this morning, you're going to have the opportunity of hearing from a guest speaker, a member of our own congregation here, who's seeking to work that out in his own life in a really powerful way. You know, when I read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, some of the very first Christians were storytellers. Think of the woman at the well. I think of Andrew, all these people that just had an encounter with Jesus, and they told their story. And they hung their story on three questions or three ideas. It was, who was I or what did I believe? And then what happened? How did Jesus get a hold of my life? And then what's he doing now? And those three ideas I think you're going to see in, in the story of our speaker this morning. Um, when we say making much of Jesus every day to everyone, anything about that is it's not really about the person. It's about the Jesus who's working in the person. And so if you know Dr. Don Bartlett, if you've eaten at Chick-fil-A any time in the last five years, you've probably seen Don. Um, that's Don's story. It's not about Don. It's really about Jesus who's working in and through him to accomplish his will in his kingdom for his people. And so if you would, open your ears, open your hearts, and welcome Dr. Don Bartlett this morning. Psalm 139, we read, For thou formed my inward parts, thou wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works. I have to be honest this morning. When I was a young child, I could not believe that. Didn't even know what it meant. And as a very young child, I used to hate the idea of church and God. I'm writing a book called Macaroni at Midnight. We're making a movie about my life. And in the book and in the movie, I want to tell the world about Jesus. I love the chapel in Northampton because every Sunday I come here, I hear about Jesus and I'm reminded how important Jesus was 45 years ago tomorrow. I want to take you on a journey. We're going back to a small community in North Dakota. It's a white community. And in that community were seven churches of every denomination. But up in the hills, in a one-room log cabin with a dirt floor, no running water, no electricity, 
no food, the world was poverty, was all I ever knew. And on a cold winter night, eight days before Christmas, 1939, a very young Native American man and woman were awaiting the arrival of their firstborn son. And I happened to be that son. My father was a very tall, proud Native American man, a hunter, a fisherman, an athlete, a macho man. My mother was a beautiful, full-blooded Chippewa Indian woman who had run away from her reservation, looking for a new life. My father grew up in an alcoholic home in the world of poverty. My mother had two, and as they met, up in the hills, three miles from Canada, they wanted a family. My mother came from a family of 15 children, my father from a family of 10. And on that cold winter night, my father helped my mother to bring me into the world. And as my father looked at me, his firstborn son, he put me down. My father turned away from me in anger when he saw my face. I had only half a nose. I had no upper lip. And in the top of my mouth was a huge hole, what we now clinically refer to as a severe cleft palate condition. But in 1939, we knew very little about my disabilities. And we live in a world of poverty, a world of hunger. My father made a choice that night, a choice that affects me yet today. My father ran away into a world of alcoholism, a world that he almost never came back from. He could not love a handicapped son. My mother valued life. And she told me years later, as she put her arms around me, holding me, wanting me, loving me, not knowing what to do with a handicapped baby. They were poor. They lived in a world of isolation. The white community wanted nothing to do with the Native American people up in the hills. The seven churches ignored them for years, and as she hung on to me, my grandmother ran into that white community. She knew they had a doctor who went to church religiously, but when he came up into the hills, when he looked at my face, when he saw the color of my skin, he threw up his hands, and he told my mother, send him away. You don't want him. Let him die. He'll never talk. He'll never learn. You people have nothing. Send them away. My mother wouldn't do that. She valued life. And holding on to me, she was not prepared. When the white people came up into the hills and took me away from her, telling my mother she'd never see me again, she cried. But she had no transportation, no money, hardly any food, no husband. They took me to a small hospital 22 miles away in 
laid me on the bed without any medical intervention, hoping I might not survive. But a young medical student from the University of North Dakota wanted to be a doctor one day. When he saw my face, when he recognized I'm a Native American, he wondered why they were not helping me. And so they took the left-hand part of my nose, pulled me over to the right-hand side of my face, leaving me with a very flat nose for 17 years of my life. They repaired the upper lip, but they did nothing with that hole in the top of my mouth. And for 17 years, I could not speak as I speak today. And as they sent me back to that one room in Hammond for nine years, my mother helped me survive. We were poor, and we were hungry, and we were poor. But the seven churches did nothing. And on her own, my mother who did not know how to handle a fetal alcohol syndrome child who was hyperkinetic, hyperactive, crying all the time. She held me lovingly all those years, going down to the river, coming back with a pail of water. And I remember her as a young child dropping the water down that hole, wanting me to survive. Late at night, when the white people were sleeping, my mother would steal food, and we might have something to eat the next day. Seven churches in that white community, they did nothing. And one day, out of my curiosity, out of my hunger, out of my loneliness, I went down into that small community. And right by the railroad track, even today, there's an isolated area. They call it the dump ground. And I remember walking into the dump ground, watching the white people throw away food. <laughs> and I remember picking up the food with my hand. And because I did not know how to chew my food, my mother taught me to push it down that hole, and then the hunger would go away. And every day I went down in the dump ground, looking for more food, finding warm clothing. And in the dump ground, I met the only friends I ever had. And they were the rats. I remember playing with the rats. They never rejected me, never made fun of me. They were my friends. But one day my mother came looking for me. And when she found me, playing with the rats, my mother became angry. And out of her determination that her child might learn, might talk, my mother took me to a parochial elementary school run by the church. But the nun would not allow me in the school. And as she turned my ear, hurtfully, trying to make me talk when I could not speak. 
she would not allow me to be taught in the parochial school. And out of her desperation, my mother took me further into that small town where they had an elementary public school. My mother left me on the playground, and as she went back to our one-room log cabin in the hills, my mother would never know about the children who gathered around me, looking at me, laughing at me, pointing fingers, calling me Donald Duck. Say, quack, quack, you can't talk. And then they took me by my hair, what we now call bullying, throwing me into the building, kicking me, and the young girl from a well-known family, a church family, she walked up to me, and out of the pure pressure affecting her, she spit all over my face. And she told me, we don't want Indians in our school. And as I ran into their school, putting my hands on the desk, holding on in fear, the first teacher I ever had who went to church religiously, I learned years later, took me by my shoulders, and because I could not talk, because I was Indian, she locked me in a closet, would not allow me in her classroom. Second-rate teacher wouldn't allow me either, put me in the third grade. And when the teacher told the children to ignore me, they gathered around me. They took me up into the hills. One of the children had some rope in a back pocket. And as they tied the rope around my hand behind my back through a tree, as they hit me repeatedly, when the blood fell on my shirt, when they ran away laughing, that child began hoping that my father might be there. But my father was never there. He was in a world of alcoholism. My people don't want me to share that. But I have to. He was never there to love me. But late that night, an old man from Canada, a Hutterite man with a long beard and long hair, dressed in black, walking to the hills. And I wondered about him for years until I became a Christian. He found me and untied the rope and sent me home. And when I arrived in that one-room log cabin, there was my father, drunk, unloving, uncaring. And when I could not tell him how the blood arrived on my shirt, he took me in what we now call family violence and child abuse. He threw me, he kicked me, and then he hit me like the white children in the elementary school. And as my mother tried to protect me, what my Native American family do not want me to talk about, why they tried to kill me in 1981, why they have threatened me this week 
to harm me if I share my journey, my anthema, my belief in Jesus. My father took my mother, and I will never forget that moment when he threw her into a window. When I heard her crying for help, I broke away. I ran into that small community of Fremen churches. And there I became a homeless, angry, hungry, jumping out and went, went breaking into homes, breaking into the church, looking for refuge, wanted somebody to intervene, hungry and lonely. And one night I made a bad choice. I broke into the elementary school, went into the library, picked up a book, and I wanted to read, I wanted to learn, never thinking. My life would change dramatically come morning. As I fell asleep on the floor, holding that book, two white policemen awakened me, take me by my hair, locked me in the trunk of their automobile, what we now call racism, taking me to the local jail. And when I went back several years ago to film the movie, the movie producer wondered why my hands were shaking. And I had to recall that moment when they locked me in a cell, when they took the alcohol, when the two white policemen came into my cell, removing my clothing, what we now call sexual abuse, that would damage the child for years. But what hurt more is when my father came after me taking me home, locking the door of our one-room shack, and then removing a large leather belt. The child never forgets the hurt. <laughs> and then he hit me, and he threw me on the floor. He told my mother, he will never be my son. And out of that moment of rejection, like the 12-year-old Indian boy in Red Lake, Minnesota, who several years ago took a rifle and killed nine people in his community, I went to the wall. I took my father's rifle. And as I aimed the rifle deliberately, I remember thinking as a child, I hate you. I will never be like you. I hope you die. But my mother, valuing life, ran up to me, knocked the rifle out of my hand, and then she told her son, what I could not believe then, 
my mother's son, we must not kill. We must not hate. One day he'll change. One day he'll have a job. One day we'll live in a nice home. My mother was a woman of hope. I have to share with you this morning. I did not have that hope. I was overwhelmed by hate. I wanted him to die. I couldn't understand why I had the handicap. Why was I Indian? And I'm here this morning to talk about a woman for the last four Sundays we've heard our pastor talk about priorities and perspective and perfection and promise from the book of Haggai. And I've learned so much about those four words. Let me tell you how they operate in a born-again Christian woman. She was white. She was wealthy. She lived in a mansion compared to that one-room shack. She had one daughter in the elementary school who went home every day telling her mother I couldn't talk, telling her mother I was Indian, telling her mother I smelled, telling her mother I had been in jail. And when the white woman found out my predicament, out of her concern, out of her faith, out of her hope, out of her belief in Jesus Christ, she made a choice. I want to share this morning. I'm going back to my hometown Thursday night. I want to tell them about this white woman of faith who had the right priorities who believed in the promise, who knew Jesus represented perfection, and she had the right perspective. One day she came into my world. I'm going to be honest with you. She was white, and the moment I saw she was white, I remember the teacher locking me away. And as I walked away from her, unbelievably, this woman of faith came into my life. And I will never forget the moment she put her hand on mine. Two cultures coming together. And because of her faith, with her hand on mine, she told me, don't be afraid of me. I'll not hurt you, but I was afraid. And as I tried to pull my hand away, she hung on compassionately, lovingly, wanting to make a difference in my life. And with her hand on mine, the white woman told me, if you help me wash my automobile, you may come into my home and eat my food. I couldn't believe her. I didn't know how to wash her automobile. She took my hand. And as I shook my head non-verbally, she showed me how to wash her automobile four times in one afternoon. Hated her immediately. <laughs> but she paid me a quarter. My wife will confirm. 
you ever come into my home in North Canton, Ohio, I have a corner on my desk. I never want to forget her compassion, her faith, and her love for Jesus. She paid me a corner. She invited me into her home. She took me into her life. She showed me the love of God before I ever knew what that meant. And through her faith in Jesus, feeding me, she saw me, not chewing my food, so she took her hand, this wealthy, white, Christian woman who valued the word of God, put her hand in my mouth, showed me how to move my tongue at the age of 12, taught me how to chew my food, showed me how to read and write what my teachers never did. And they went to church religiously. She showed me the power of Christian love and faith. I was overwhelmed. And one night, wanted me to speak, hoping that might help my predicament in life with a close on my nose, with a mirror under my nose, with her food all around me to motivate me and challenge me, she began teaching me how to make the air come through my lips, how to make sound with my voice. And one night, around the midnight hour, she who had begun talking to my mother and father, welcoming them into her life, showing them the love of God, she told me to run home and show my parents what I had learned. And around the midnight hour, my mother had a hot bowl of macaroni waiting for me. My father was there. And as I put the fork into the macaroni, as I put the macaroni at midnight in between my teeth for the first time in my life, my father began watching me. And as I chewed the macaroni, I remember the white woman teaching me how to make the air flow through my lips, how to make sounds, and pointing at the macaroni, I began saying, Mac, and when my father began realizing, he asked my mother how. My mother friend Abraham, the white woman in town. She'd been helping him. He's your son, Abraham. My father and mother went to the white woman. Hear me, church. Just like this morning with Habitat for Humanity. And the white woman help my family find a house in her community, find my father a job, began changing the whole perspective in that white community about Indian people. And through her intervention, teaching me how to work, teaching me how to learn, teaching me how to survive, I became, with my new speech, after 17 
surgery after six years of therapy, I went back into my high school and became the first handicapped Native American student to graduate in valedictorian of my high school class. But that wasn't enough for the white woman. She wanted more. And she told me, you should go to the university. And with my new voice, I told the white woman, never. <laughs> and she challenged me. If you go to the university, I'll mail you food. <laughs> I went to three universities. <laughs> she mailed me food. But more important than all that, hear me this morning. More important than all that. She showed me the Bible. She taught me from the Word of God. She told me about Jesus being a promise. Talked about perfection. <laughs> I never forgot that. And as she gave me a Bible for the first Christmas gift I ever received in my life, my mother's church became very angry. And when they heard I had the Bible, they came to our house. And the same priest who violated me behind the altar when I was an altar boy, took my Bible and he burned it with a match. And Don Martin made a vow. I would never, ever value the church in my life. And as I went to the university, I became a man of anger. I met a young woman from a white family, a church family. She's no longer alive today. Through my hurt and out of my hate, and with the help of alcohol, she died a very young life. I ran away to California, and in 1964, at the National Republican Convention, I have it on television, they show me with long hair, a red bandana, anger coming out of my heart, and I spit in the face of the wife of the Republican candidate for president. Ended up on the steps of Race Cathedral on Knob Hill in San Francisco. Bombed out of my mind. Overwhelmed by hurt and anger and violence and alcohol. And as I ran away to Michigan, you all know her. I met her in a residential treatment center where I happened to be a director helping handicapped children. She came from a 
Christian home, a wonderful church. She always knew church. She always knew about God. When I took her into my web, she became my intern. And I began violating everything she ever represented about God. And as she married me, for six long years, my wife suffered greatly. But she knew the word of God. She believed in the Bible. She knew all about Jesus. And she took me at my worst point to a church in New Hope, Minnesota, when they believed in Jesus like the chapel does. And in that small church in New Hope, Minnesota, I found new life. And as I became a born-again Christian, a believer in Jesus, I began studying the Word of God. And I became famous <laughs> as a motivational speaker. However, Dr. James Dobson focused on the family founder, a man of God who loved Jesus, heard about me, invited me on his program. And as I shared my testimony about being a new Christian, a new believer in Jesus, he wrote me a note. Don, pray for your father. Forgive him. I shook my head no. Dr. Dobson wrote me another note. Pray now for your father. Unknown to me, in North Dakota, where I had my first operation, my father lay dying, unknown to me. And here on the radio, worldwide coverage, I began praying for my father, asking God to help him become a Christian. And as I began forgiving my father, Remembering the word of God in Luke 23:34, I forgave him. The doctor in North Dakota, recognizing my speech impediment, knowing who I was, went into the room and said, Abraham, your son is on the radio praying for you to become a Christian. My father, according to the nurse, had no idea what the doctor was talking about, but as I was praying that my father would know Jesus one day, the doctor led him to the Lord. Jesus. I want to read from the Bible. I have taken with me all over the world for 45 years. I want to read 
from Romans 10, 9 and 13. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God, our Heavenly Father, raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Whoever, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, hear me. I have forgiven the seven churches. I have forgiven the two policemen who hurt me so deeply. I have forgiven the priest who lied to me about being a father. I have forgiven my classmates, my early teachers, my father. This morning, I don't hate white people. I don't hate the church. My wife and I have healed a marriage. We've had 13 pregnancies. Eight of those are living today. And my children love me. They love me. My grandson this morning heard me at 9 o'clock. And like his father, who heard me at the same age, who cried when he heard my testimony. My grandson went out in the car and he was crying about me. And I put my arms around him. I told my grandson, I'll never forget the power of Jesus. That's why I'm happy this morning. And I thank God for a church called the Chapel of North Canton who reminds me every Sunday morning that Jesus is the right priority. Jesus is the promise. Perfection comes from Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Will you bow your heart? Oh, I pray. In his time, in his time, he made all things. Beautiful in his time, Lord, my life I bring to you, and may everything I do only serve to honor you.
Amen.